to me, the question is, are we going to lead with fear or lead with empathy? The reality is leading with fear will get you results in the short term. You can, you can scare people into working very, very hard for you for short periods of time. And so if you are that kind of leader where you say, you got to get me this product by Friday or you're fired, you will get that product by Friday. What you won't get <laughs> is the information that there is a fatal flaw in the product design. That means that it is going to blow up in two weeks, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's Katherine Manning, an attorney and victims' rights advocate for the past 25 years, training and consulting on effective empathy in difficult times. She's the author of the acclaimed book, The Empathetic Workplace, Five Steps to a Compassionate, Calm, and Confident Response to Trauma on the Job. In this timely, grounding, and generous conversation, she shares some of her deep insights on the perils of fear-based leadership versus the generative effects of empathy-based leadership. She explains how the vulnerability of sharing our difficult stories with others is not necessarily in the content of those stories, but in the need for reciprocity. We need people to bear witness to us, to listen. That's the L in her powerful laser method. And as you'll hear, that's not a skill many of us have in our back pocket. We talk about Me Too, the necessity of a response to story, and what gets in the way of truly seeing and hearing other people in their pain. And when we are listening to people's stories, she describes the challenge of trying to stay present to quell our own anxieties and why it's so hard to hold off on jumping in with quick fixes and solutions that people didn't ask for and don't need from us. And we discuss why it's so important to shift the workplace mindset from trauma denial, with an exclusive focus on productivity, to trauma literacy, and the need for us to be more proactively curious about people as human beings. What does a workplace look, sound, and feel like when we trust that people know what they need when we trust that we can respect those needs enough to trade defensive barriers for good, healthy boundaries. As a senior attorney advisor for 15 years, Catherine guided the U.S. Department of Justice through its response to victims in cases ranging from terrorism to large-scale financial fraud to the exploitation of children and domestic violence. Catherine Manning is a beacon of wisdom and compassion, a voice of grounded empathy and tireless advocacy. She has witnessed firsthand how the power of story can help people reclaim voice, restore a sense of safety and dignity, return us to ourselves and each other, and recognize the possibilities for healing and growth that can emerge through empathy. She is the founder of a company called Blackbird, D.C., in Washington. As the Beatles' lyric goes, take these broken wings and learn to fly. Catherine Manning.
Catherine Manning, welcome to The Foreseeable Now. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start here. You say that we carry our struggles with us wherever we go. And as you write in your book, The Empathetic Workplace, those issues from the past are present at work. I mean, we can't separate our lived experiences from any other experiences, let alone work experiences. They are woven into our conversations, our interactions with people who we don't know, let alone the people we know, work with, or love and know well. So I'm intrigued to start maybe with this line at the beginning of your book. You say, if we work with people, we are working with people in trauma. You know, I've worked with victims of crime for a long time, about 25 years, and it has given me a glimpse into just how prevalent issues of trauma and victimization are in our society. And it's not limited to the criminal justice system. When we talk about um, issues of addiction, illness, injury, domestic violence, um, fraud, there are so many traumas that people are dealing with on a daily basis. And I think because I've had the privilege of working with so many people during really difficult times in their lives, I've gotten to really glimpse, um, I think, a, a fuller picture of the issues that people are dealing with every day. You know what strikes me when you just said fraud, and I remember reading in your book, which we'll get to in a few, um, I was thinking, yeah, fraud, identity theft, all these things that we in our world tend to think of as personal problems. Ah, that's just the stuff people are going through and we don't talk about that stuff at work and we don't want people to know these things about us or even the other approach, which is, uh, that's not my problem. We got a deadline at five or we have a deadline now. And so it's this, it, I, I really was struck by that right away about how humanizing what you're proposing is the work that you're doing is to say, we carry all of it with us. So when we show up for work, whether it's Zoom, there might be a reason we've got our camera off. There might be a reason we show up and we're irritable in the workplace. There might be a reason why uh, that particular employee is, quote, hard to manage. Trauma is not a jacket that we can just take off when it's time to go to work. Mm. I wish that it were. Wouldn't that be wonderful if we could just say, I'm going to just put that in a drawer and come back to it when I'm ready. God. The reality is that it's with us all the time. And in terms of the workplace, it affects our productivity, our engagement absenteeism, our communication, our ability to support the people around us. So it is already in our organizations and it's already affecting the bottom line. The question is, what are we going to do about that? Mm. And if we are hoping, well, if we just don't talk about it, maybe it'll go away. I'm sorry to say that's not working. We've tried it for a very long time. And has has become clear in the last two years as we've been dealing with COVID and the murder of George Floyd and anti-Asian hate and the Capitol riots, just crisis after crisis after crisis, these lines are even more blurred than they ever have been before. So I think it's essential um, for any organization that hopes to lead a strong, empowered, productive work place in the future, it has to take seriously how to support its workforce during times of trauma. 
all of the events that you mention, the umbrella that so many of us have been crouched under is grief. Mm -hmm. The grief of so much loss, so much associative pain, and so much ripple effect from those losses, but also, and we'll get to empathy in a minute, but the ways our brains are designed to feel the suffering and the pain that we are watching or to numb from it. And this not lasting a week or two weeks or the quote aftermath of events as they flush through news cycles um, at the speed of news, um, but that they live with us, they live in us. And all of this chronic prolonged uh, disorientation, heartache, fear, all of the sort of um, scales falling from our eyes that we never really could predict things. So funny that we thought we could before, but I think about how that trauma hasn't been named and the pandemic has hit all of us um, in the solar plexus in so many infinitely different ways. And it just reminds me again of how unique trauma is. It may be ubiquitous, it may be universal, it may be completely natural, uh, an element of our human experience um, that's timeless. Uh, but boy, do we ever know now how unique that experience is. Yeah, and as you point out, it's not always easy to show up well for somebody else who is struggling. First of all, it's just hard to sit with somebody who is grieving. If you have a, a friend or a coworker who has just lost someone they love, often we have that awkward moment of, what do I say, right? There's, there's nothing right. I could say that could ever be equal to what you're experiencing right now. Um, and I'm afraid I'm going to mess up and make it worse. That's a really normal human reaction to have that fear that you're going to hurt somebody who is already hurting and you just, you just want to make it better. Um, and so what often people do is they just don't talk about it at all especially mm -hmm. in the workplace, because there's this fear of, well, I'd be crossing boundaries. I don't want to, you know, mess up their day by bringing up something that might be painful if they're not already thinking about it. So it can be really difficult to navigate those moments of interactions with people who are going through some sort of crisis or a difficult period in their life. There's also that vulnerability piece where it's um, we're still not really wrestling, uh, I guess, effectively enough with uh, bringing vulnerable, our vulnerable selves uh, to our colleagues and to the workplace. Because I think we still, I mean, you know this so well, but I'd love to hear you unpack this a bit about, we, we just find it so difficult still to not just process and metabolize our own emotions, intense emotions, sadness, grief, anger, any of the ways in which anger is a shield for some of these more tender, uh, deeper emotions, but have such a difficult time, whether we are parents or teachers in a classroom or CEOs of companies. In the 25 years you've worked as an attorney, as a counselor, as an advocate, as a legal advisor, 15 years with the DOJ, 
gosh, Catherine, you've seen and heard a lot of pain and thousands of stories of, of tragedy, of loss, but of survival and resilience. You know, early in the podcast, you talk about that we carry these stories with us. And I feel that almost viscerally, um, I can still think back over the years of these hard conversations I've had, the moments that I've sat with people that were some of the darkest moments of their lives. And, you know, I do carry those with me. I, I feel them in me. But I don't think of them as a weight. I think of them as a gift because what I've been able to experience with those individuals in these hard moments is such a, a cherished moment of connection that really has tied me to these individuals over the years. And that includes people that I maybe had this conversation with over you know, 10 minutes, so a one hour flight on an airplane and mm. never saw again. But I still feel a very close connection to every single person who has shared their story of trauma with me. And I do believe that they all have shaped me into who I am. And I feel so grateful for those moments of human connection. I don't want to minimize how hard it is. It is really, really difficult sometimes to stay present with people. One of the stories I tell in the book is about a hotline call um, with a woman who just found out that her daughter was being abused by her ex-husband during court-ordered um, visitation. She was screaming, howling on that phone call. Mm -hmm. um, I can still hear that, that sound still echoes in my soul today. But I am so grateful that I had the privilege of sitting with her in that moment. Because that connection, um, that moment where she was able to reach out and get help that she needed so that she could go back and take care of that little girl and fight for her, which she did really, really incredibly strongly. Um, I just feel so privileged that I was able to be with her in that moment as she was able to let go and then gather the strength she needed to go on and do what she needed to do. The way I guess you're describing the echo, to call it a gift, it just makes me think that we, I guess our nervous systems start to calm when we feel heard. And there's something so powerful, um, given that we're wired for this connection that you talk about. Can you share a bit more about why presence is so palpable to the other person? You know, I think it's something about the way that we evolved. We have evolved as creatures of storytelling, of sharing our experience. And there is something incredibly healing about being able to share your story and have that story be received as the gift that it is. Um, I have a friend who does a lot of public speaking on the topic of trauma, and he himself is a survivor of childhood abuse. And he said sometimes he shares his own story as part of the training, and sometimes he doesn't. And he doesn't know walking into the room whether he'll share it or not. But he said, mm. he said the moments that he shares it is when the audience is clearly present and with him. And then he is able to trust and open up, and that sharing is healing. Wow. 
Wow. If instead the audience is disengaged, looking at their phones, you know, arms crossed, they're clearly not present. He said, if he shares his story with an audience like that, it becomes Mm re-traumatizing. So really it's the way that we receive those stories that can have an impact on whether that storytelling is healing or not. So that's why it's so important that stay present, stay present, stay present. Because if we don't, if somebody opens up about something really challenging, hard, painful that they're dealing with, and our response is minimizing or vague or, you know, changing the subject, that actually can cause a second harm on top of the first. We don't want to do that. What we want is to show that we're grateful for this story that they've entrusted us with and that we are there for them and we want to support them in whatever way they need. Yeah. Okay. Thinking about what you just said, where he doesn't know he's going to share his story until he kind of, to paraphrase, feels them out. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating how such an unspoken process. And that is just, that is that gut brain, that second brain, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right in our gut that says no, no, or yeah, I wasn't planning to, but I just did. Yeah. And that is so interesting when you talked about meeting people on the plane too. I mean, we've all been there. All of a sudden you're (laughs) telling somebody these, (laughs) like, how, how is it that I trust you enough to tell you all this? And it's not just because I'll probably never see you again. It really is this body gut somatic permission slip that says, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. And then that also strikes me as being so profound because what is one of the first things to go temporarily, at least when we are impacted by potentially traumatic events, and that is agency. And what you're describing is he has the agency to say, I don't know. I don't know whether I'm going to tell it. I'll decide. Mm-hmm. I will decide, right? And that that response flexibility that is so elusive or so, um, that gets kind of buried in us, I think that speaks to the fact that we can regain it. Absolutely. And that's also part of why I feel very strongly that each individual should have the choice about whether they want to share their story or not. I don't, I don't believe it's wise to pressure people to share their story, to say, you know, um, oh, everybody needs to hear what you went through, or or we really need um, changes to be enacted, and thus you should stand up in front of a crowd or share your story with this individual. It's really, really important that each person gets to decide when and to whom they want to share their story. I would love to talk about Me Too because I know what a turning point it was based on a previous conversation we've had, but I want to read from your book for a minute. (laughs) Let me read you your words, Catherine. (laughs) Okay, page 45. You know how to listen, right? Keep your mouth shut, let the other person talk. Is it really more complicated than that? And you go, a bit. The (laughs) The reality is that most people are pretty awful at listening. We interrupt, We segue into a topic we care more about. We check the clock. We barely hear what the other person is saying because we are so eager for them to take a breath 
so that we can jump in with something we know about that very topic. None of this is listening. While you may think that you are engaging in a back and forth, what you are doing is shutting down the speaker. <laughs> it's like, I, I read that and I went, uh, are you talking about me? <laughs> Wait, you too, right? It's you two, right? Me, me and you. We, we both do that, right? Of course. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, I think that's so interesting. In my mind, there was an asterisk and that is when we're stressed out, we do that. Mm -hmm. But when we feel connected to ourselves, when we practice self-empathy and self-regulation, that's when we can get more curious. That's when we can notice, oh, I'm feeling the urge to jump in, but I'm not going to. Because like you, Catherine Manning says, stay present, stay present, stay <laughs> present. So yeah, say a little bit about that and then feel free to just uh, segue into the turning point that the Me Too movement uh, represented for you. Active listening to me is really one of the most important things we can give to somebody in pain. Um, you know, I'm a lawyer. Lawyers by nature tend to be fixers. We want to jump in mm -hmm. and solve the problem. Oh, I know exactly, um, you know, what you need to file to get access to those benefits that you need. Or I know exactly how to handle this negotiation in a way that makes sure that your interests are protected. What we often overlook is the power of simply being present and listening to someone as they share their story. Often that is more important than any other thing we can do for somebody. And again, it's not always easy, but there are some things we can do to help us get better about it. One is just tuning in and paying attention and recognizing my goal here is just to stay present. I'm not going to try to solve this problem right now. I'm right. just going to stay present and let them share their story. That's hugely, hugely important. And, and if we can focus on that, I think it helps a lot. In terms of the Me Too movement and why that was such a powerful moment for me, I had been in the Justice Department, gosh, I started in 2004, and then Me Too was uh, 2018, so what is that, uh, 12 years at that point? Mm -hmm. And I had been working on issues of trauma and victimization for even longer than that. In particular, I had worked on issues of violence against women. I started off working on hotlines for domestic violence and rape crisis. So when Me Too shot across headlines and <laughs> courtrooms mm -hmm. all over the world, I was mm -hmm. thrilled because I sure. thought Isn't this amazing that these issues that have been um, underground for so long that so many people knew about and whispered, but were not talked about open openly are finally being brought to the forefront. Sure. Right. You're thinking finally, exactly. Finally. Yeah. Finally. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I struggled with was seeing in Me Too a real pressure on survivors to share their stories. There was mm -hmm. this, everybody needs to hear what you, your story. Everybody needs to hear what you went through. How are we going to hold these people accountable? If you don't come forward, you owe it to other survivors. A lot of pressure on survivors to share their stories without any understanding that there is a reciprocal obligation on those who 
hear those stories, that if a survivor comes forward and shares their story with you, you have an obligation to listen, acknowledge, and provide supports that they may need, to listen in a respectful, supportive way. Instead, what we saw often was all this pressure on people to share their stories. They would then share the stories, and then instantly it was is this person lying? Are they being paid? Do they have some alter ulterior motive for bringing this story now? And, and instantly, everybody is talking about them, and nobody is going back and saying, thank you for sharing this. And are you okay? Is there anything wow. I can do to help? That and the sheer volume, because social media, on the one hand, it's yes, finally. On the other hand, it had a hashtag in front of it, um, which meant it did change the landscape. But the sheer volume of stories shared meant that there was no way that each person was going to get that reciprocal, that complete listening. Mm -hmm. And so did that concern you in terms of what the potential fallout or maybe even damage or maybe even re-traumatization of that kind of portal or platform for storytelling? We need context. We need relationship. Absolutely. I think it's really important, again, for survivors to have control over that narrative. If it's something that you're posting on Twitter, it's something that can get out of your control very, very quickly. For some people, that is healing. That, that moment of sharing publicly is what they needed. And having that forum to do it is great. And that gave them everything they wanted. Um, but I worry that others felt pressured into doing it. And um, that a lot, as you said, a lot of the nuance was lost along the way, and things kind of quickly spiraled out of control. Um, and I also worry that because there was not a lot of um, real meat to the societal changes that we might need, um, that came out of me too. You know, one of the big things was getting rid of the non-disclosure agreements. And I know that those um, NDAs, as they're called, have been very damaging to a lot of people, but it is also something that a survivor has as an option for them. Some of them actually affirmatively want an NDA. Um, and so I worry a little bit that one of the main things we've had come out of me too is something that takes away survivor choice. Um, so, and because of that, I think that um, it, it really limits what could have been an incredibly powerful reckoning moment for us as a society had we had the forum and um, the ability to engage in a deeper conversation around violence against women. You write in your book that survivors should be able to tell their own stories. But it's so interesting that you're so careful to, to create frameworks where you center their agency, their dignity, their choice, but also the power of language to, to shape the narrative. There's a lot that gets in the way when we're trying to be helpful. When you, you mentioned about being a fixer, I think a lot of us think that we're fixers. I think a lot of us think that we need to be rescuing, fixing, saving, and so we get in the way, but I also think about some of the things that just come with the equipment. You know, we have this brain to brain, interbrain, there's this 
we have emotions that are contagious. We have mirror neurons that reflect back to us what we could be feeling too. I mean, somebody yawns and for goodness sake, we're yawning. <laughs> and, and then we have our own patterned responses of, of what that cue and that signal and that body language means to us. You're absolutely right that sometimes empathy can be a barrier. Um, we are hardwired for empathy. We have mirror neurons that allow us to experience to a lesser degree the feelings of the people that we're interacting with or even just seeing. So what that means is if we are interacting with somebody who is really angry or very upset, is experiencing a stress response, we will experience some of that same stress response. And what that means is a stress response gives us a flood of adrenaline. Um, we get a little bit fidgety. We maybe start playing with our pen or looking out the door. Um, and a suppression of our complex thinking, our ability to make rational, reasoned decisions gets slightly muted in a stress response. So if we are interacting with somebody who's having that stress response and we are getting the contagion effect of it, it's going to affect us in the same way. We'll suddenly be a little bit fidgety and maybe have trouble thinking of things we want to say. Mm -hmm. The normal human response, it just means that we are um, empathetic human beings, but it can make it difficult for us to respond effectively in that moment. It's uncomfortable. Often we just want the interaction to end. And so we're just trying to figure out a way to get through it as quickly as possible. Mm. Yeah. And I'm also thinking about how our own threshold for vulnerability it kind of plays them. That's the elephant in the room because we can't go deeper with someone else than we allow ourselves to go. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's true. And, um, you know, I, I think in part because of my work at DOJ, a lot of what I did was advise prosecutors and law enforcement agents on how do you work with victims? And it was so funny. There would be a prosecutor would call me and say, um, well, you told me that it was up to me whether or not to accept a plea. And so I could accept a plea even if the victim didn't want it. And I would say, yeah, that's, that's right. Well, I'm, I'm, I accepted the plea and now he's really mad and he's, he's going to yell. So, so will you call him? Oh my <laughs> goodness. These are like big, you know, gang prosecutors who are handled these really intense cases, but that human emotion, somebody's going to yell, somebody's going to cry, that feeling of, out of control. I don't know what's going to happen in this yes. interaction can be really, really scary. And it's something that a lot of people will do almost anything to try to avoid. Oh my gosh. I mean, I'm just finished watching Suits on Amazon <laughs> Prime. And I'm thinking the great Harvey Specter, who is so, he's just Teflon, but he's got mother unresolved mother issues of fears of abandonment. And so like, I'm thinking about that prosecutor who's so used to working uh, in the world of gang violence. And do you think he'd be tough of nails, but not if he had a dad who screamed at him? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me your definition as you've come to understand it in all your research of empathy. It is such a beast of a concept. There's, I mean, even researchers can't quite agree on the exact definition they purport to be the right one. So how do you understand empathy? 
I think of empathy as just the ability to understand and work with the emotions of others. Hmm. So much compromises that ability. Mm -hmm. You know, many years ago, I remember President Obama saying, we have an empathy deficit in this country. And I just could never quite let that land. I just kept thinking, with all the unprocessed, unaddressed, intergenerational trauma, racial oppression, and structural violence, so embedded into society and culture and policy, long-standing, entrenched systemic abuses. I mean, from the education system to the carceral system to immigration to voting rights, I mean, dot, 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 dot. Empathy deficit or the byproduct and fallout and effect of all of this cumulative, intersectional, ongoing trauma. You know, we have been struggling so long to bear up so much in our own lives and in the lives of the people that we care about that we start to get numb. We just start mm -hmm. to shut down and compassion fatigue is a very real and challenging um, issue to confront. It sneaks up on you over time. I certainly have experienced it myself and seen it in my friends and colleagues. Um, it's, it's very, very difficult to to see it as it is starting to happen. Um, one of the stories I talk about in the book was a, a guy I worked with at the Justice Department who was a prosecutor of child exploitation cases. And he was a really good lawyer, uh, um, great both in front of a jury and also in working with victims and their families. And I really enjoyed working with him. We worked on a project together for a couple of years. And then the project ended and we went our separate ways. And we came back together again, probably a, a while, maybe five years later. And he was like a different person. He was hmm. suddenly much more sarcastic and bitter, quick to anger, you know, just never at me, but it, just little, you know, hurdles that you hit in any project. He would just kind of fly off the handle, like, of course, another thing, you know, what? And I just thought, what is going on with him? And finally, I realized it was compassion fatigue that hmm. all those years of working so closely with people in trauma had taken a toll on him and he had gotten to the point where he was he was sort of numbed to it um and it often shows up in that way a numbing um a feeling of helplessness like oh there's nothing i can possibly do um or a, a shorter temper that more quick to anger what you're describing about short tempers and being quick to anger. I'm thinking of the backdrop or the context of the quote, great resignation about how many millions of people left. All of the workplace toxicity that so many people tolerated and maybe they tolerated it as a trauma response, like a, a sense of helplessness. Well, where else am I gonna go? Well, what else am I going to do? I wonder whether this idea of compassion fatigue or the fatigue piece of it is a kind of giving up. And that reminded me of resignation, which then reminded me of these threshold points where like tipping points for empathy, tipping points for how much can we take before we say, if I don't make this decision, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to get through this. Mm -hmm. And so it reminded me of how you wrote in the book that trust 
which I think this is really all what it boils down to. It's the holy grail of workplace culture. So before you unpack that, which I think is so important, what do you sense is happening with trust or mistrust and the great resignation? <laughs> and maybe your dog has something to say about it. <laughs> I'm sensing. I'm hoping, I've been hoping that it's recording as two separate files so that you're not, when you're talking, it's not recording the dog over here. <laughs> oh no, he wants to be heard or yes, she wants to be heard. I have yes. many things to say about the great resignation. <laughs> yes. So what do you think? You know, in a normal year, um, it's likely that some percentage of your office or your team or your department has experienced some kind of trauma, whether it's a, a child who is struggling at school or um, maybe a diagnosis of an illness or, or struggling with addiction. There is likely some smaller percentage of your organization that's experiencing trauma. But what has been unique over the last two years, as we have seen all of these issues, um, is that it's really everywhere. It's, it's the air we are breathing right now. Mm. I think that if leaders, if organizations believe that they can go back to work as usual, like let's just reset the clock and pretend that it is January uh, 2020 and that um, we're just right back where we are. And we're could gonna... we, could we please do that? Yeah, please. I know. Right. right? God, could we please do that? <laughs> yeah, I know. And I think a lot of people want that. They want to just have a big welcome back party and we're all just going to go back to where we were. But Oh, that's just denial. Yeah, Good. it really is. Got to get, get I, over that. That's what I think this um, great resignation or great realignment is, is people have spent these two years really thinking hard about what matters to them. If we are in this place where we don't know who is going to make it, right? Millions of people have died. What is it that really matters to me? Is it how many, you know, how many memos I can get out this year? Is it how many sales I can make? Probably not. Probably what matters more to me is connection, making sure that I can be there for the people mm. that I care about. And that's what people are looking for in their homes and their communities. And they're looking for it at work as well. Um, they want to work for organizations that they can trust, that they feel, see them as who they are, that have values that align with their own, and where they are working with individuals who they care about as humans and who they know care about them as humans. Yeah, who don't, I mean, that trust piece is so huge. I hear it over and over again about leaders and organizations suspicious of remote work or hybrid work. Um, how do I know they're working? Mm -hmm. How do I know what they're doing? And, you know, gosh, if that's the question, we got much bigger fish to fry. Because yeah. if, if that's the question, how do I know you're doing your work? How do we shift from that? How do we shift from workplace denial, cultures that ignore the personal and would like the personal to disappear because they because we don't deeply trust that people can manage both? How do we shift from that? And how can you name the stakes for us? 
I love this question. <laughs> I think about this all the time. To me, the question is, are we going to lead with fear mm. or lead with empathy? The reality is leading with fear will get you results in the short term. You can, you can scare people into working very, very hard for you for short periods of time. And so if you are that kind of leader where you say, you got to get me this product by Friday or you're fired, you will get that product by Friday. What you won't get <laughs> is the information that there is a fatal flaw in the product design. That means that it is going to blow up in two weeks. Right. <laughs> if you lead with fear, you are building your house on a minefield and it is going to explode and you don't know when. If instead you lead with empathy and you check in, you say, how are you doing? Are you running into problems? This, you know, this was due by Friday and I, it's only Thursday and you're not very far. What's going on? How can I support you? It seems like you're running into some problems. That is where you uncover the fatal flaw in the product design. And that is going to save you so much down the line. So if you are willing to invest more time up front to show people that you want to hear about their mistakes, their challenges, their problems, inside and outside of work, you are going to get a more engaged, more inspired workforce that is going to last so much longer than you would with the culture of fear. Even though the culture of fear in the short term may look more attractive, right? You might get higher numbers for a, a short period of time. Over the long term, you are, I'm telling you, you are building your house on a landmine. Mm. Oh, I love this. So that is so powerful because leading with fear, it goes back to those patterned responses. If that's what's familiar to us, mm -hmm. if that's what we grew up on, if that's the soup that we're drinking from, then that just feels like, well, that's the way, that's the way you get results, right? Yeah. But, and as you know, so in your book, The Empathetic Workplace, Five Steps to a Compassionate, Calm and Confident Response to Trauma on the Job, you walk us through so well and so accessibly how to address sort of the, you know, the question that is the elephant in the room for a lot of leaders and employers, which is, well, we're not counselors. I don't want to get into all that. I don't want to know all that. And then how do I then cross that line into the personal and then set my boundaries? And I think it's fascinating because that's barrier mentality. And you're talking about boundaries. And that the boundaries that we are able to cultivate when we learn how to empathize, the way you're guiding us through, become a natural byproduct of that process. And you have this brilliant laser method. And laser is an acronym. So give us the five. It, we started with listening and mm -hmm. listen. And so give us your 
your laser acronym. So great. <laughs> <laughs> it, it kind of makes me laugh. I spent so many years in government that acronyms just kind of roll off the tongue for me now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> we, we all think. love them. <laughs> but the, the hope is it will help people in the moment where you have that brain freeze of like, oh, my gosh, this person is telling me something really awful and I'm afraid I'm going to say something wrong. If you can just hold on to laser, it'll give you a little roadmap for where to go. So first step is listen. Second is acknowledge. That means saying to the person, thanks for sharing that. I'm so sorry for everything you're going through. Just something that shows that you heard them. So listen, acknowledge, share information, whatever information you can share on the subject with the person. Then empower with resources. Let them know this is where EAP is. This is where um, you know our, our office security is, if that's what they need. And then R, the last step is return. And that is both return literally to the person, check in on them later. How you doing? Do you need anything else? And also it's a return to ourselves, an acknowledgement that there is a toll that can be taken on us as well through supporting other people in periods of trauma. And we need to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves along the way. Mm. Catherine, I love it so much because I really had a paradigm shift when I read this book because, you know, a lot of the people that I hear from who are really struggling with how to move from barriers to boundaries, as I like to kind of put it in that frame, um, because it really is about barriers is parenthetically is leading with fear and boundaries is leading with this this courage and empathy you talk about. But I, I think about the shift in mindset and, you know, state shift, really, nervous system state shift from, I don't want to get involved to how do I get engaged? It's like, a, it's like moving from management, managing people to engaging people. And that when we can engage people, we trust that they know what they need. And we also trust that we know where the boundary line is to guide them to someone else for support. But let's go to the R for return. I want to kind of come around the back nine of this conversation and ask you about the necessity for self-care and even expanding it to how there is no self-care without community care, without collective care. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm glad that you talk about the issue of boundaries. Um, the goal here is not to turn anybody into a therapist. <laughs> right. I think of um, these steps as almost CPR. It's just, let's give you, we, we've noticed that there is an immediate crisis. Let's provide some instant support and then get you off to the experts who can, who can help you on the next step in your journey. Um, Part of that means that we have to recognize that we cannot be all things to all people. And in particular, we need to not take responsibility for anybody else's happiness or healing. Mm. It's hard, especially if you are a helper, if you are somebody who um, really gets a lot of your sense of self-worth from the fact that you are a good caretaker. Um, sometimes 
it can be difficult to step back and recognize the best thing I can do to take care of this person right now is let them decide the next steps to take on their own. Um, even if I think this is not the right step for them, even if I think they are, they really need to get into therapy or they really need to go to the police or whatever it is that you really think they need to do. Um, part of self-care is recognizing that you have really a really, really important role to play, but it's a limited one. You can provide them some immediate support, but then you need to let them move on in the way that they want to. That's an important part of self-care. I got to tell you, I mean, I spent a lot of my 20s trying to rescue everybody around me. Mm. <laughs> and it doesn't work, <laughs> sadly, right? Even though right. I'm certain that I know exactly what everybody else needs. <laughs> for some reason, it just doesn't work. <laughs> Why won't you do what I think I know is best for you? I've got the exact right answer for you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it, it, it is a lesson hard one. That boundary setting is, is a really, really crucial piece of it. And then the other thing is that kind of quintessential put your own um, face mask on first, right? You're um, in the oxygen. airplane. Yeah, your oxygen mask on first. Um, recognizing that if you are not doing the daily maintenance self-care, you are not going to be fit to serve anybody else in your life. So mm -hmm. what is it that you need to be able to keep yourself healthy um, happy, relatively upright and moving forward on a day-to-day -day basis so that you can show up in the way that you need to for yourself and for the world around you. Because you have a lot of important things to do out there, listeners. I know you have incredibly important work to do, and I want you to be able to do it. And to do that, you've got to make sure you're prioritizing yourself. Yeah. And I mean, it comes back to trust again and again, as you speak about all this. But I also think about how important what you're saying is that self-care is not, does not exclude and must include checking our ego at the door, checking our biases, checking our own BS, checking the places we don't want to look, mm -hmm. checking the places where we may be denying ourselves or suppressing the processing of our own traumas the processing of our own intense emotions that we are trying to stay too busy to feel. And so we cannot stay with other people in conversation that get tense if we want to bolt for the door, because man, are we ever going to clamp that down faster than we can say, can I get you sugar with your coffee? <laughs> and, and so I, I think it's so powerful and I'm right there in that collaborative space with you about wanting so much to be part of the charge of co-creating trauma-informed workplaces. Yay. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. Yeah, that's, that's my main goal. I want to make sure that Let me think how I want to say this. I feel it is my life's mission to help organizations better support the humans that work there and that rely upon them through periods of trauma and distress. 
through their policies, through their actions, through the work that they are doing in the world. And you're right, it does take some humility. It takes some introspection. It takes commitment and a willingness to keep learning, keep iterating, recognizing this is not something that can be done quickly. It's something that we all have to be working toward. And it might be a long time to get there and it'll it'll keep being hard work. But through that work is where we see the beauty of how people flourish when they feel supported, not just when they have you know, turned in the report on time or had great sales numbers, but even in their hard moments where they are struggling, where they don't like themselves, where they feel like they're not worth everything that you're paying them. If you can show up for people in those moments, you can actually build a community where people feel seen and where they can trust and when they feel seen and can trust, that's really the environment where people can be creative and productive and joyful in their work. One more question. What would you tell your law student college girl self right now? I would say you don't have to fix everything. I know the world is broken in a million different ways, but if you lead with your heart, use that powerful brain of yours <laughs> and show up with compassion and effort again and again, you will be amazed at the journey before you. I'm smiling big because you called your company Blackbird after the Beatles lyric, take these broken wings, finish it for us. And learn to fly. <laughs> find out more about Katherine Manning's work and writings, check links in the episode notes. The Foreseeable Now is hosted and executive produced by me, Lou Hanessian. Co-production and original music by Kano Sound. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe, share, and tune in every Wednesday for new episodes. And follow us on social media at the Foreseeable Now podcast.